Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore from World Soccer, and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. Lightning, they say, doesn't strike twice. Well, maybe they, whoever they are, are wrong when it comes to football. Leicester, little Leicester, were patronised as 5,000 to 1 outsiders, but still managed to win the Premier League. They're still being underestimated, but they're doing everything right. Who knows where that will lead? Have they got enough about them to fight on two fronts? We'll probably find out on Sunday when they've got a tricky FA Cup tie at Brentford. You wouldn't bet against them at the moment, would you, Glenn? No, in fact, it's three fronts, I think, because they're also in Europe, aren't they? I mean, uh, which tends to get forgotten about this time of year. But uh, no, you wouldn't. There is... um... I think there's a there's a bit of snobbishness against Brendan Rodgers in a way that you know the whole deluded Brendan thing, the picture on the wall, the TV series he did with Liverpool and so on, which obscures the fact that he's a very very good manager. I mean he's a, he's got a good record wherever he's been really. I mean you forget just how close he took Liverpool to winning the championship, for example, before Klopp did one slip away really. Great record at Celtic, which is now being shown to be not quite such an easy job. The Italy Rangers weren't really a threat at the time, and so there's a slight sense of. I don't know, maybe it's because he wasn't a player, maybe because he has a tendency to sort of uh, over-talk to an extent. You know, as journalists, we should be very pleased to have a manager who talks a lot. And whenever I've been, you know, in press conferences with him, he's always been a very good talker. Excellent. So I think that is partly sort of the sort of, plus the Little Leicester thing, but they look a very good side at the moment. And yeah, they've lost big players and they seem to be able to replace them all constantly. And Vardy is showing the value of, yeah, concentrating on playing for Leicester rather than going away for England and getting 10 minutes here and there and looks in tremendous shape. Yeah, you remember he came into the game very late and he's still got that tremendous hunger. There's a slight concern as to what would happen if he doesn't score because they're very heavily dependent on his goals. But they are beginning, I mean, as Madison the other night, beginning to produce some goals in midfield. Yeah, they've certainly got greater depth in the squad and I suppose to misappropriate a, a political slogan, it's about recruitment, 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 isn't it, Amory? Yeah, very much so. And I like Glenn's slip there where he said, you know, a slip away from the title. I thought it was very good, Glenn, to put that in. <laughs> but yeah, it is very much about that that word recruitment. I think if you think about the, the players that left Leicester, Ben Chilwell, you know, Kante, Conte, I should say, Riyad Mahrez, Harry Maguire, and they've managed to replace them with even more stellar talent. You know, James Justin, Harvey Barnes, who came through the, the youth system, Wesley Fofana. You know, I look at what he's doing at the moment. You know, they've had such 
good quality recruitment and they've done it quietly as well, very much under the radar, which has been absolutely top notch. And I mentioned about that centre-back Fafana who's just blown everybody away with the way that he plays the ball with such confidence at the moment. And, you know, him and and Saliba came through together and, and they've gone completely different paths now. So, yeah, the recruitment, I think, has played a massive part. And picking up on Glenn's point about Jamie Vardy, I think it's really important that other players are now stepping up to the plate when it comes to scoring goals because they're not going to be able to rely on Jamie Vardy all the time. And you th- I think you're seeing that now. Others willing to take that opportunity, particularly uh, Harvey Barnes, for example, and Didi getting that goal as well. And I think you need that, particularly as Glenn pointed out, that they're still playing on all three fronts in terms of competitions. I mean, the interesting thing about the recruitment is, I mean, we remember, I mean, was it four years ago? Everton poached Steve Walsh. Arsenal uh, recruited Ben Wigglesworth. Neither of those clubs have recruited particularly well since. So it's clearly about the structure rather than one or two individuals there. I mean, I know they use a lot of technical stuff behind the scenes, which they're loath to sort of uh, explain too much about for obvious reasons. Yeah, well, it was interesting, wasn't it, that James Madison interviewed the other night, talked about his debt to the analysts at the club. And I do think that when you look at the club, you've got to look beyond the first team, haven't you? And, you know, the training ground, 200 million training ground, you know, coming on stream, you've got that as I say, structure, belief in analytics. And I think, you know, the word quietly actually sums them up. They're just quietly getting better. Glenn, you actually mentioned right at the start about Brendan Rodgers being terrific in press conferences. I think there's a case to be made for James Madison being the best interviewee in the Premier League, isn't there? (laughs) He's very good, isn't he? I mean, that's what we like to see. I mean, in my experience, the hardest thing about interviewing players is actually getting to interview the player. Once you can get past all the people trying to stop you talking to people, uh, most players are are good talkers. I mean, there's always been this idea that English players are thick. I I would say they've often been undereducated because they tend to concentrate on their sport at a very young age and therefore not had as much time in concentrating on schooling as most people do who start their careers at 18 or 21. They're starting their career at like 14, 15. But there was no lack of intelligence among most most footballers. Rooney would be a very, very good example of a, of a highly intelli- you know, of an intelligent guy when it wasn't that obvious when he first came into the game. And a lot of players, if they're comfortable and if they're given a bit of space are actually quite good talkers yeah i'd agree with that well what about you amory because obviously you've got experience of of other sports as well you know that, that's the sort of adversarial nature of some of these press conferences that we have you know count against getting underneath the skin of of, of players because you know you know i'd like like glenn i've always found that once you uh, you get to players they are you know they're cognizant of what it's taken for them to get to the top of their profession and they're willing to talk about it. The thing you have to remember when you're doing these things with players is to tell them that this is very much a conversation between you and me. Don't see it as like, I ask a question, then you give an answer. I ask a question, you give an answer. Flow it like a conversation and let your personality shine through because that's when you relax and you feel more comfortable. What you've got at the moment with a lot, and as you, you say, I, I work in other sports, is you get very generic answers. And I'd be a millionaire by now for every time I hear a player say or an athlete say, like I said at the beginning of every single sentence, mix it up a bit. Let your warmth come through. Let your intelligence shine through. And, you, you know, Glenn talked about Wayne Rooney. He's somebody I could listen to all day, every day because he gives such refreshing and open answers. And that's what was so good about James Madison. And if you compare it to 
Other players that are given interviews post-match, Aaron Wambasaka's in post-match interview when he did it, it was literally three words and answer. If I was the press office, I'd take him one side for half a morning and show him all the different ways that you can do a press conference, how you can do post-match interviews and talk for 20 seconds and give an in-depth answer and use your personality as well. If you're not comfortable doing it, that's perfectly fine. But in this advent, when it's meant to be open and honest, transparent communication, I think that's something that needs to be bedded in quite early for players nowadays. And it does frustrate me at times trying to get through that wall and just explaining that it's just a conversation that's all it is and I have some questions and just let it flow and it will come through naturally he does say quite a bit for Madison though and that he has had he, he has had some bad publicity in the past already in his young career and yet he's still quite happy to plant up and talk because a lot of cases it's people are scared of saying the wrong thing but and Madison has had quite a bit of criticism in the last couple of years and yet he's still prepared to sort of have confidence in what what he has to say yeah, I totally, yeah, totally agree with that. Sorry, Mike, I really, really agree with that. And that you do, you didn't get that sense either, Glenn, when he was talking. You would think, actually, that he's happy to chat anyway. So I, I think that's what won a lot of people over. Sorry, Mike. No, no, it's okay. And actually, also, I think we should just say, you know, two good interviewers there, you know, Des Kelly and, and Jeff, Jeff Shreves got, got the best out of him. Glenn, when we're looking at innovation in football, we tend to do th- think of Brentford, don't we? As I said, they're at home to Leicester on Sunday. They're almost the 21st member of the Premier League, aren't they? Well, I guess apart from those yo-yo clubs, I suppose, the Norwiches and the Swansies and Watford all look <laughs> as if they might come back up. But yes, they've been knocking on the door. Increase, they've got, again, that's another club with, like Leicester with a very good structure, very good system. It's well run from the top. They are spending some money, but they're spending clever money. And, yeah, yeah their game recruitment is very much a key part there. When you look at the players they've been, they've sold on and then they've always got someone lined up to replace them. There's obviously, they're obviously thinking several steps. Okay, well, if he goes, then who do we have to come in? Yeah, and where are we looking? And there's a bit of the money ball aspect, I suppose. They're looking in places where others aren't necessarily looking, a bit like Leicester are. Yeah, when you think about it, you know, the players they'll sell at the end of this season, Ivan Tony, most probably, Josh De Silva. De Silva, Amory, was one of those that Arsenal let get away. Arsenal are continuing their defence of the Cup uh, at Southampton. Do you think the winners of this tie will be amongst the favourites? This tie makes me incredibly nervous as a gooner, I have to say, because Southampton <laughs> are a brilliant team. They're great to watch. The fruits of the hard labour that Ralph Hasselhutten has put them through over the last two years or so, you're starting to see that now. And Arsenal's inconsistency, I think, could play a major part in this match. I don't necessarily think whoever wins this is a favourite for the title, given the stellar names that are within round four matches anyway. I'd just be glad if Arsenal can get this one over the line, I'd, I'd be happy for that. But I look at it with a little bit of nervousness, given that we that Arsenal don't have a great record against Southampton in the first place anyway. So no, I don't necessarily agree who the winners are. These two will be the favourites because, as I said, I think you've got some strong teams still left in, in the fourth round. Yeah. Are Southampton discovering or rediscovering the price of success, Glenn? You know, you've got Danny Ings and Ryan Bertrand who are basically saying they're going to leave unless the club breaks its wage structure. You know, they've developed, you know, Ings in particular has rehabilitated himself at St Mary's. You know, is this part of the new reality of, of, of being a club in Southampton's situation? I think it's always been the reality of being a club in Southampton's situation. 
And don't forget, they, they buy players from lower down the food chain. I mean, this is the way football's always gone, and obviously more so now than ever. But, um, yeah, there'll be players in a position where either you break the structure, which is obviously a risk, and then everybody in dressing wants more money, or you just um, you have to make sure you've got someone lined up to replace them. But the, the player they'll be picking to replace Ings if they need to would also be you know, moving up the food chain from somewhere. So they're partly predator and they're partly um, a victim of the circumstances. I mean, when you think the amount of players have lost to Liverpool over the years and how well they've still performed, I mean, again, it comes down to having a plan, having good recruitment, bringing players through, which they found is obviously better at than most clubs from their own system to replace it. And the only way you break that is by getting into the top four and start generating that kind of income. But as we've seen with Leicester, even Leicester, who obviously their owners are very, very rich and they could decide to sort of just pump up the money if they wanted to, but they decided it more cleverly. And and they're still you know, losing players and they are certainly been a top team for a few years now. Can we look at the nature of Arsenal's revival to cheer you up a bit, Amory? They're taking a chance on youth. That relationship between ML Smith-Rowe and, and Bakary Saka is probably a case in point. They've now got five sheets, five clean sheets in a row, which is the best for 11 years, which isn't bad for a a so-called comedy defence. They're beginning to, to hit their stride, aren't they? And yet I temper that with caution because of that word of consistency or inconsistency when it comes to Arsenal. Look what happened when they played against Crystal Palace. That was probably one of the most soulless games I've ever seen Arsenal play. And this is no disrespect to Crystal Palace. Arsenal should be able to score against them. And they didn't. And I take the fact that, you know, last four wins in the Premier League, they're 10th in the table. Bear in mind that we still got Aston Villa now have, what, three games in hand. You know, they need to have a winning mentality across all competitions. And as much as I love watching Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe play, the reality is, you know, we're halfway through the season. I wouldn't want them to now to, to drop off their, their levels as we head into the now more tougher part of the season, this is where I put a big call out to the senior players. They really need to step up now. They need to step up with responsibility, and you could you could see that a little bit, particularly with some you know with Rob Holding being a bit more outspoken now. But Leno has been a bit more outspoken, and I want to see more of that from Arsenal. And I think having Partey back in, I think, is a big part of that because he will be able to help with their attacking problem shall we say when it comes to Arsenal and also Cedric as well I think in terms of that back line Mike as much as I love Hector Bellerin I do wonder if he still has the legs even though he's only 25 years of age I think injury has played a massive part in his career and Cedric I think was quite key for the win the other day so I think you know as a gooner if I put my fan hat on for a second I'm tempering every game with caution. Yes, it's great to have the clean sheets, but there are still people who believe that Arsenal is still weak in certain areas. What Arsenal need to do is to keep building that momentum, but get some consistency. Otherwise, things are going to start to fall apart again. Yeah, I suppose when you look at Arsenal up front, Glenn, Aubameyang, I'd only scored one in 10 before Newcastle. He'd looked lost. Is that just the nature of strikers? They have good and bad patches. Yes, I think the negative way of looking at it is that once you sign a new contract, you stop scoring goals, which is in lots of lots of cases. The other way of looking at it is that strikers do go in runs of form. I mean, most of our currently can't buy a goal, and he's one of the best finishers in the in the division. I mean, Arsenal's an interesting case in point of what it would whether they'd be better or worse if fans were allowed in. I mean, you know, just listen to Anne Marie. I mean, there's a. I thought Arsenal may have benefited from not having fans because the ground hasn't been a happy place in the last few years. 
And the team have been able to play their way out of the sort of malaise that they were in with the young faces coming in who show less fear uh, without having a negativity around them as they go into matches literally in the stadium. I know it has been around their social media and so on, but the absence of fans may have helped Arsenal. Uh, um, and hopefully when they get back in, you know, the team will be on a bit of a ride, a bit of a lift. I mean, the whole, there does seem to be a lifting around the club of some of the pressure felt earlier in the season, which the young players have largely led and hopefully might find it easier for the older players to express themselves now. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, crowds always respond to young players, young homegrown players. So that might have worked in Arsenal's favour. Do you agree with that, Amory, that one of the almost unconsidered elements of this season is the fact that players and teams in general are lacking the emotional connection that they have with their fans. That's been put forward, particularly at Sheffield United, hasn't it? They have said they are Mm. desperately missing the fans and I completely understand that. Crystal Palace is another team that really thrive off that fan atmosphere, particularly, especially at Selhurst Park. It's a brilliant place to go and it's packed to the rafters. And I think, I do believe that it's had a massive impact. But then on the flip side, you've had clubs that have been able to thrive off it. West Ham, for example, another place, if you could put that alongside with Arsenal at the Emirates, is another place that can become a very hot cauldron when things are not going Hammer's way and, and, and fans are very vocal about that. So I think it's worked in some teams' favour, but I don't think it's worked in others. And I feel for, for Sheffield United because I really think they could do with that emotional connection right now with the fans urging them on very much so. Yeah, on the other side of Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday, they're at Goodison on Sunday night, Glenn. At the moment, that does strike me as a very strange club. Yes, it is. I mean, there's lots of issues going around, the ownership and so on. I mean, the, the manager with changes have been um, quite quite swift. Yeah, and there's no real evidence of a plan as such. I mean, obviously starting the season with minus six points and it helped matters, but they have gradually started picking up results. It seems like a long time ago when Wednesday were a big club competing for titles, which obviously we would remember. And since then, they had one spell in the third division or the third tier, come back up. And clearly, I mean, in all sort of two-team cities, you are reflected on how the other team are going. I mean, as a, as a city, you know, the city of Sheffield had a terrible run earlier this season with neither team winning for a long, long time. But you know, even now, I mean, Wednesday uh, will have a, how a bad United season has been. Wednesdays, is, um, they're doing it division below. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and you can you can feel the angst from uh, down here where you know where our southern southern softies are residing. What about Everton, Amory? Are they a club to watch over the next two or three seasons? Ancelotti has always said he, look, he is targeting the FA Cup. Do you know what I think? Everton, uh, like Leicester, they're really ruffling the feathers in the Premier League and good for the league because we need this right now. And I'm loving the fact that, uh, well, especially for Toffees fans anyway, that they're, you know, they're only two points behind Liverpool and a game in hand. So it's all getting a little bit spicy. I think the only, for me, the thing they need to sort out is conceding goals. They've joined that group with uh, Crystal Palace and Chelsea and Newcastle in terms of they've got to stop the leaking of the goals. And I think for that, they need to, you know, firm up, obviously firm up the defence because there's no, there's nothing wrong with the attacking side of Ayrton. The quality that they've got there is just immense. It's just sorting out the issue in terms of the goals. But uh, I'm liking what Ancelotti is doing now. I'm really glad that Duncan Ferguson stayed as well because as he's publicly said, he could learn so much from Carl Ancelotti and you can do. Ancelotti's probably one of my favourites actually at a press conference because he's also a bit of a talker as well and he injects a little bit of humour into press conferences. So I'm really enjoying watching Everton 
at the moment. I think there is certainly, you know, this season and potentially next season as well, I think they should be looking at European qualification. Angelotti is a good example, I think, where because of his achievements and reputation, it, it brings him so much extra sort of time for both from the media and, and the fans that a sense that he will get it right. So when you have a, a blip, yeah, there's, there's a confidence that Angelotti will fix it. Whereas obviously a younger manager or a newer manager with lesser reputation, people say, oh, hang on, is that it? Where because it's Angelotti and he's done it before, there's a sense of, yeah, it's just temporary. Yeah, there is something... I think quite almost dignified about him, but also there's there's that dry humour which comes across really well, and I I think also Amory he to me embodies almost the Italian attitude towards football in terms that it is again you know we talked about the emotional connection between a fan and a team that emotional connection he has you know deep inside him with the game it's absolutely integral to his personality and character isn't it yes and to use the term personality politics you're seeing that more and more now within the game of football that players and now the managers and the club as a whole and even the league are expected to have that emotional intelligence when it comes to the game it's not a not necessarily just about you know kicking the ball and and making it go back into the net it's about how you make the ball go back into the net how you talk to the fans how you talk to people within the club itself and also within the media too and and I like that I'm very much somebody who's very much into emotional intelligence and I'm glad that we're starting to see that more and more within the game because we keep hearing that players are human managers are human coaches are human great let's see that side of you and Ancelotti does show that very much and I like that that's the you know in terms of Italian football they are the kings and queens of displaying their emotion on the side of the, of the pitch side and I'm glad to, we're starting to see that more and more in the Premier League. Yeah, it's really interesting to talk to Ancelotti about about his dad. You know, he, he has obviously is a huge influence on him and the whole idea of, you know, he was a product of of a rural way of life in Italy. To move on a bit, Glenn, the weekend, the FA Cup weekend begins at Chorley. Now, despite all the distractions, and the people who are still throwing a bit of mud at the competition, should we draw heart from the fact that a club like Chorley remains in the competition at this stage? Yes, I think we should. I know they beat a youth team at Derby and it probably was a game that clearly they should have won. But, I mean, before that, they beat Wigan and they beat Peterborough. And Peterborough are a strong sider, one of the best teams in the divisions. I mean, it's not like they've fluked their way into this level of the competition. They, you know, they, they were proper wins against decent sides. And that's a, that's a fantastic achievement. And what a brilliant fixture for them. I mean, um, obviously one that shivers down the spines of Wolves fans from a few years ago. But uh, it, it does, you know, it's a classic cup tie, isn't it? Yeah, and Wolves, you know, they're, they're sort of holding up their end of the bargain by basically being in decline. Should we look beyond, you know, the obvious, the loss of Raul Jimenez? Uh, I, I was struck by the connotations of substituting Connor Cody in the derby. What about you, Emery? I tweeted it straight away, going, what's this about? I would never expect to see, unless he's injured, I would never expect to see Connor Cody to, to come off the pitch because he's he's such a leader on the pitch. And I noticed that Nuno Espirito Santo, normally he's standing by the touchline, he's, you know, barking orders, but he was sitting down most of the time in the technical area. And I just thought, what's going on here? You know, Wolves are good, but they are a great, they're a good team. Wolves are a good team, but I think players need to start asking themselves what 
can they do to start making things better and start the fight back at Chorley? I'm really looking forward to this encounter between Wolves and Chorley because, as, as Glenn alluded to, because the past history and there's been a bit of social media beef already about virtual tickets. If you haven't seen it, do check it out because it, it did make me laugh. But uh, yeah, I, I, they're not declining like Sheffield United have. I don't think, you know, we shouldn't go too over the top with Wolves in the sense that we know that they've got quality there. I know Silver was a record signing for the club. He is 18 years old. You know, let's give him a little bit of time. And I think you're starting to see that he can play a, a big part. But yes, in terms of Jimenez, I think that was a massive blow. It's good to see him back watching games, which is good. Hopefully he'll be able to get him back into the side. I'd like to know what's going on with Traore. What's going on with him? as a player because he's not necessarily starting every game which I find a little bit surprising Daniel Podence I like him a lot can we can they integrate him more into the team it's odd with Wolves because they're a team that show no fear but I'm starting to see cracks and I'm sure there are a few Wolves fans who are feeling a little bit concerned right now yeah a lot of people are going to be looking at the model aren't they Glenn you know when you think about it you know whether we like it or not the elephant in the room is called uh, Mendes and it's interesting the sort of players who are being linked to Wolves are Wolves almost like a sort of diamond studded dustbin at the moment you're talking about you know Bayern Munich are saying well do you want Douglas Costa on loan so we can't get him in the team they're being linked with uh, uh, Villian Jose the the Brazilian striker at Real Sociedad you know we talked right at the st- top of the show about recruitment 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 is it going a bit wrong for Wolves in that area? Well, they won't be the first club to be heavily influenced by one agent, though obviously this is, most, this is the most obvious example of it. I mean, we can, you know, Arsenal will be another club where you look at some of the recruitment recently and one or two other clubs where are these deals always being done for the for the club's best interests? I think most I mean, Wolves fans have been very happy with what's happened so far and I think most will be quite happy as long as, as, long as the club are benefiting if other people benefit as well, that, that won't really be an issue for most fans. There's uh, an interesting element in, um, I think, uh, changes in China in terms of uh, the investment in football and how that might pay out in the agent market in Europe. And I know Mendes is involved in that. But I mean, you also have to look, I mean, I think Doherty's been a big loss to them this year. I mean, so they basically lost Doherty, Jimenez, and uh, Holter from last year. So that's three pretty big players. And then they start, and they're trying to change the system a little bit more because obviously you can't keep playing the same way because clubs work you out and Sheffield United have found. So I think there is a sense it's a transitional season at Molyneux this year. But they could certainly do without losing at Chorley. Yeah, that's for sure. What about shocks elsewhere, Amory? You know, West Ham aren't the... They're not conforming to that sort of flaky stereotype that we've been giving them. They've got Doncaster at home. Now, Doncaster under Darren Moore are very quietly impressive, aren't they? Three points off the top for, you know, Doncaster Rovers. I was looking at the stats yesterday, seven wins from the last eight games and two games in hand on the leaders. It's all going under the Rovers' way Mm. right now under Darren Moore, a very understated coach, Darren Moore, and I really believe that he should be coaching in the Premier League. He's doing some fantastic stuff with Doncaster Rovers. They'll give West Ham a really good game, but the momentum's with the Hammers right now, to be honest, Mike. And Hammers, this is the time now. This is the momentum now to go for a really good cup run and league run while you've got this really good positive momentum right now. Mikel Antonio has talked about there's so much positivity in the team. He talked post-match about it. And you could see that. It was literally seeping from his pores as he was talking. 
So I think um, I think Doncaster Rovers, they'll give West Ham a good go, but I expect West Ham to be the ones who go forward to the next round. It'd be interesting which team you picked, actually, Mike. I mean, Antonio's such an important player, just back from injury. Without him, they, they do lack something up front. So you sort of think, well, the league is always more important, therefore do you rest Antonio, give him a bit of a break after you know, a busy week, or do you feel that you know, West Ham, you know, they're safe, they probably aren't going to get in the top four. This ought to be a season when clubs like them are thinking, well, this is a chance to get in the FA Cup final. I mean, uh, always amazed me Bournemouth when those seasons when they were comfortable. They put out reserve teams at you know, places like Millwall and get turned over. Yeah. And you're thinking, yeah. if, if Bournemouth are ever going to get to the Cup final, it's never going to be a better chance than when you're eighth in the Premier League and you're going to be one of the top 10 teams in the country. Why are you filled with reserve teams in these games? And, you know, this is There should be quite a lot of teams looking at the FA Cup and thinking, this is an opportunity this year, particularly with you know, such congested fixture list and the big clubs got so many big games in Europe coming up. You know, May United or Liverpool will go out. You know, um, Arsenal got a tricky tie. You could very easily get to a situation whereby you come to the semi-final, you know, the draw goes well. It's a clear run through to, you know, to at least the semi-finals. You know, and then you're playing against teams that are going to be tired with other things on their mind. I mean, there's certainly a possibility for all that that big bunch of teams in the middle of the Premier League should be thinking, we're among the best teams in the country. We could win this. We could get to Wembley. You, know, it's, you look at the two clubs already out, Newcastle and Villa, their fans would love to have got a Wembley final. Yeah, particularly they'd be allowed in. Yeah, who knows by then? Yeah, and when, when you look at David Moyes, Amory, why hasn't he got a new contract? He's done terrifically well. He couldn't do any more. Only the two Davids and Karen Brady can answer that question. It is a bit of, it's perplexing. Perhaps negotiations are ongoing as we speak. Um, but, it, you know, it, he deserves a new contract. Can you imagine, you know, he came through, well, he took over, what, halfway through the season last year and he's doing a fantastic job with the team. You know, there was always a little bit of concern when it came to Davey Miles because he's he's known for playing so defensively, but he's he's relaxed that a little bit and has allowed Mikel Antonio to do what he can do. I mean, watching Mikel Antonio the other day, the fact that he was literally just bullying players on the pitch. He sent one player absolutely flying. I had to rewind it and go, oh, did, did he just do that? Because he, you know, he's just this hulking mass of a man. But also, you know, he can score goals as well. I think, you know, there's still a question mark about how David Moyes can incorporate Ben Rama into that team. But you're looking at Jared Bowen, you're looking at Thomas Suchek, Declan Rice, who's got a real leader, 21 years of age, and he speaks with such leadership as well. And that's all come through David Moyes, and he doesn't get a lot of credit, and I know why. He's not everybody's cup of tea, but, you know, give some, give him some respect of what he has done so far. I've never seen, in my lifetime anyway, West Ham play better than what I'm actually enjoying. There's something, I, words I thought I'd never say in my lifetime. I'm actually enjoying West Ham play, watching them play. I've been to see them a few times before the pandemic. So I think, you know, I think a contract is there on the table. I can't see the owners wanting to look elsewhere. Yeah, you know, I'd agree with you about, you know, the standard that they're reaching at the moment. I, I would also say, and we talked about, you know, atmosphere, you know, tangentially, at least earlier on, you know, the Olympic Stadium is still a mausoleum. It's awful. Declan Rice also, you were right, Anne-Marie, to talk about uh, his leadership qualities, which you know, were, were coveted by Chelsea. Now, Chelsea have got Luton in the cup. Glenn, is this a, a, th- a tie which maybe proves the theory that some managers are simply suited to a football club? And of course, I'm here, I'm talking about Luton's Nathan Jones, who basically bombed at Stoke, but he's, he's doing really well uh, back in familiar territory. Possibly, though the problem becomes, of course, if you become associated with only one club, then 
when eventually you leave that club, which is, you know, we all know it's bound to happen, then it's quite hard to get a job somewhere else. Yeah, you can be very too, too closely associated with, with a club as, as your club. And this is, this is in a way, the sort of the Lampard problem in that you end up getting the great job at the club that you're very closely close associated with. But then what happens if it goes wrong? It, it, was, uh, it, is a, it, is, it is a difficult one. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a tricky fixture because Luton are in good form at the moment. And obviously Chelsea aren't. He brought back the leadership, it, uh, left out some of the younger players, I'd say, were left at Zuma. Then, of course, you're done by a fairly simple ball over the top that you imagine Zuma's sort of player probably would have headed that clear. So it is difficult. And this is where, you know, you talk about David Moyes and now looking at Frank, this is where the experience helps when you've been in the situation before. You can think about what did I do when I was working my way up in the third division or and it went wrong or whatever. Yeah, how do I fix this? Where if you are still to an extent learning on the job, because obviously just that brief period at Derby, it becomes harder to do that in the, in the glare of the spotlight. Yeah, what do you think of Frank Lampard's future at Amory? He's in that sort of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer position at the moment where every game's a crisis, isn't it? The Leicester game certainly cranked up the pressure on Frank Lampard, Mike. To be honest, this is a team that are playing really badly out of form. And for the quality that they have, it's not good enough for Chelsea. And I completely understand why some Chelsea fans are up in arms about this. And I know the the the, the figure that has been spent on that squad is thrown around a lot, but it's actually quite a key point. You know, over two hundred million pounds. And I know, you know, fans will argue about how much Liverpool have spent, but Liverpool at the moment, despite the slight blip, are still delivering. And you look at Frank Lampard sometimes, and he's standing on the touchline, and and I'm not sure he he knows what to do or or why. Things are happening. Why things are happening, you know, unfolding that way, particularly on the pitch. I would still give him till the end of the season just to work out which players can play in the right position, who is in form, you know, push Ben Chilweller and Reese James to fight more, work out what to do with Tammy Abraham and Kai Havertz as well. We still need to remember that Chelsea are in the Champions League and I think that's still something in his favour right now, but he needs to work out his best 11 really, really quickly, get some momentum, get the confidence back in. One could argue that teams haven't had much of a pre-season and Chelsea would probably say, well, look, you know, we've had all these players come in and we probably needed that pre-season time to integrate them into the team, except everybody had that same issue at the start of the season. And one place that you could look over the river, if you like, that well, not necessarily over the river, but down the road, that happened to was Fulham when they brought in a whole load of different players the dynamic was lost and look what happened to them and I'm not suggesting for a second that Chelsea are going to be relegated because that's not going to happen <laughs> however however the danger of finishing outside the top four and we're halfway through the season is a real possibility so I think he needs to sit down with his coaches get a, I'm sure they're talking about it anyway and get a plan together get your who's in form which players can work best in those positions and push forward in the Champions League? I think the Champions League is his saving grace right now. I would also give Frank a bit, bit of time at the moment. Though Chelsea aren't a club known for giving the manager time. And I, the other question I wonder, were the players brought in his decisions or were they brought in by people above him? Because when you look at the squad that's been given, there are too many players who play in too many similar positions, which means they're not playing in the positions they were playing in when they were signed, if you see what I mean. I mean, Havertz and Ziyech and Werner, you know, they're not necessarily playing where they were playing when they were playing Germany or, or when they were playing elsewhere in Europe. 
Yeah, I, do, I suppose what this weekend is highlighting is is you know the different types of manager. You know, we, we're basically you know coming to to terms with you know frankly coaches that we don't know that much about in terms of their day to day experience. And I'm thinking here of someone like Neil Critchley at Blackpool. We've got Brighton, who probably don't need the distraction from their relegation struggle. You know, Critchley, is he a case in point about managers and coaches who are underrated and maybe even undiscovered? You know, here's someone left Liverpool's under 23s just before the initial lockdown last year. He's one of only 16 coaches with the UEFA elite badge, so he obviously knows his way around a training pitch. Is that part of the fascination of, of the cup, Glenn, that you come up against managers that you don't really know that much about? Yeah, so the, the elite badge is quite interesting. I mean, that apparently was a one-off course that Dick Bate, the former legendary coach of the FA, brought in. It was a one-year group in 2012-2013, and only they ch- literally chose who they felt were the best English coaches under 40, and uh, Neil Chris is one of those. Um, but interestingly, look at the list. They're all still working in the game, but none of them have gone on to be managers yet. And Michael Jolly had a go at uh, Grimsby, which obviously didn't work out very well. And most of us are working in uh, younger age groups, uh, uh, two or three at Newcastle, funnily enough, where hopefully they're producing lots of good players, but they haven't turned into major managers. Christie may, may be the exception, and um, certainly they played well against West Brom. Yeah, this is an interesting fixture for Brighton, which they won't really fancy. But there are there are a lot of talented coaches out there, and I think in England we're now getting a little bit beyond the Scherzer cuts mentality. You know, what did you do as a player to an extent? And clearly, it's harder for English coaches to an extent because you know, the Premier League are picking from the whole of the world in terms of who they bring in. So it's very difficult for a talented English coach to work their way into the Premier League. You know, Generally, you have to get promoted into Dean Smith, being an example. You, know, you take a team up, Chris Wilder, and that's how you get into the Premier League because no one's ever going to hire you. And it's quite rare for a Premier League club to hire a man, an English manager from outside the Premier League without previous experience. I mean, unless, like, Frank, there's a connection, for example. So it is quite difficult. There's certainly quite a lot of talent out there. And I think we've been very lucky in that we've got a balance of some very good foreign managers which brought influence and ideas and also you know, young upcoming English managers. So there's quite a lot of possibilities. Then again, there's quite a lot of um, interesting young foreign managers in the lower division. I mean, Reading would be a good example. Yeah. And, and if we're looking at younger uh, English managers, uh, look no further than Wickham. They're at home to Spurs on Monday, Anne-Marie. Is that, you know, with Gareth Ainsworth's track record, inspirational manager, great relationship with, with that team. Is this a possible upset if Spurs revert to being Spursy? No, I don't think so. I think the quality that, that Spurs have right now, I expect them to to win this one. Wickham have had a bit of a tough time because of COVID. They've had games postponed left, right and centre. As far as I'm aware, you know, they're starting to get their players back in. But I think Mourinho will actually rest key players for this particular match at Adams Park. I think it'll be a chance for Gareth Bale to get back on the on the field, get some minutes. Of course, Harry Kane didn't play in the Marine win, so I'd expect him to get a couple of minutes. But I don't expect uh, Spurs to go full pelt with this one in terms of the players that they'll put forward. They've got, you know, decent enough B-team players, shall I say. Those are on the fringes of the first team. So I expect them to, to win. And I think they learned their lesson as well from that Fulham 
one all draw. You know, they want to, de- they're desperately a team that want to give rid of that perception of being Spursy. And I think that was the, one of the reasons why Mourinho has been brought in. A win is a win for him, regardless how it's done. Even if it's, if it's grinding out a win, it's still a win. So I, I think for me, you know, I don't think they will allow that kind of Spursy tag to be over their heads when they play against the uh, Wickham Wanderers. Yeah. Where do you think the FA Cup stands in terms of priority with Liverpool and Manchester United, Glenn? You know, obviously that tie is one they could have done without. And probably, to be honest, we all could have done, couldn't we? Well, I suspect that every other team in the competition were quite pleased when they joined together because it's one of them out. <laughs> um, but yes, it's a tie they could, they, they certainly would not have wanted to be, because of the nature of the relationship between two clubs, you can't afford to lose the game. Therefore, you have to field a stronger side than you would have wanted to at this stage of the cup. But equally, losing, losing the game might actually be beneficial in terms of fixture congestion later on in terms of Europe and in the, the league. So it's, it's a tricky one for, for both managers. I mean, I suppose you could look at the moment that so Liverpool could do the win. Uh, they're slightly, I mean, they're still good side, obviously, uh, and, they're, and they're still very much up there, but they have a slightly sticky period of form and they could probably do the win more than Manchester United could in this particular fixture. United, clearly, the league is more of their priority after so many years without, you know, by their standards of not winning it. So it's a, yeah, a tricky tie for them, um, but I suspect most other people, most other clubs have quite clearly won them knocked down. Yeah, what about... Um... Paul Pogba, Amory, he's actually turning into from a you know he, he's been portrayed as a problem child, but actually now he's a bit of a sort of management man management role model, isn't he? he, he Solskjaer's getting the best out of him in different ways. He is. I mean, you know, getting that goal against Fulham, the winning goal that took them back to the top of the table. You wouldn't have thought Paul Pogba would be the one. I was expecting Bruno Fernandez to get the goal to send them back to the top of the table yesterday. Uh, Paul Pogba confuses me, Mike. Because I, I, I just, I like him as a person. I like his character. I like his personality. And then he's got that, you know, his agent who I could use strong words against, but I won't. And it, it just doesn't marry up for me. Because I was thinking when he got that goal against Fulham, the winning goal, I was thinking, but then there's in my back of my mind, we had all this talk about his man, his agent saying, you know, January window, what's going to happen? He may leave, he may not. I think, but he's not playing as somebody who wants to leave, if that makes sense, because he's still being professional on the pitch. That's why I'm so confused about him. I, I just, I wish he'd speak more. In fact, I wish he'd tell his side more r- rather than relying on others. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, you know, he's very much known as a man manager anyway. He very much has that, in, again, those words of emotional intelligence with his players. So for me, I think that's going to be quite key, that relationship between Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Pogba. I just, I just, in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, is Pogba going in January or is he, is he staying? Because I haven't seen anything to suggest that he's actually going to be going and he's going to be staying for the rest of the season. And I hope he does as well, because I think he gets a lot of unnecessary grief sometimes. He's not at that level of Ozil, of disappearing in games he still has something to offer. And I think that's what Manchester United need right now as they head into the next few months and some tricky fixtures. Yeah, as far as transfers are concerned, it's very quiet out there at the moment, 
too too quiet Carruthers, isn't it, really? Do you think that's unsurprising, given all the financial circumstances, Glenn? You know, will panic prevail as usual, or will we just get a, you know, a rash of a few loans and maybe one or two small bargain deals? I don't think it's that surprising, given the, the uncertainty over what's going on in the next few months with COVID, and also, you know, obviously... Clubs at all levels have taken a bit of a hit financially, so it's not. It's, I don't think that's surprising. I mean, traditionally, it's quite hard to buy well in the January window. I mean, Fernandez would obviously be an outstanding exception to that, but traditionally, it's, it's quite difficult to get players that get a good short-term impact at, at this stage of the season. And you already bring them into you know quite a crowded calendar where it's going to be quite difficult to get them on the training ground. I'm surprised Liverpool haven't gone for a centre half. That would be an obvious area where you might thinking, yeah, they could do with somebody. But of course, the other problem with buying this time is quite difficult to get players out of clubs as well for the same reasons as you need players, particularly with the fixture issues. Clubs are reluctant to let players go unless they don't want them. And if a, player, a club doesn't want somebody, then the chances are there's a reason for that. Yeah, well, when we talk about clubs not wanting players, you know, naturally enough, we go to Ozil, don't we? Um, as at Ozil, his formalities, I think, are, are being completed, although they're protracted at uh, Fenerbahce. That taken, Amory, without getting into the Ozil situation yet again, was it more surprising that you know, a young player like Bright Osei Samuel would go from QPR to Fenerbahce in the summer? I read the statement from QPR about Samuel going to Fenerbahce, and I, I, reading between the lines, I sent some real disappointment from the club about they were told that he was going, just like that. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the club and the player manage that situation because he's still with them until the summer. So that's a protracted length of time, isn't it, with this situation? I think it's somebody of his quality, when I was doing a little bit of research on him, he is very much loved by the fans and they were, they were seeing him as the person who could be the next Eze, if you like, because, of course, Eze has gone to... To Crystal Palace, and yeah, the mind boggles with this one. I'd love to ask a QPR fan, what was, why did Samuel decide going up? Not necessarily going abroad, because we see that a lot of young players are taking those opportunities. And hey, there's an opportunity to play in another country. I'm, I'm an advocate for that, as we've seen a, a few young players have gone across to Germany. But I just, it doesn't. This one doesn't make sense to me. Maybe there was some unhappiness behind the scenes. Though, of course, we wouldn't necessarily be aware of. But it just strikes me as a, as a little bit. Strange, And as I said, he's not going till the summer. And if fans do are able to come back in and watch matches at grounds, it's going to be really interesting to see how that's going to go down if he's on the pitch when fans are back in the stadium. Mm. Staying in Turkey, Glenn, Danny Drinkwater has signed for Kazim Pasa, who I must confess I know very little about. Can you remember another fall from grace that's been so spectacular? I was racking my brains on this one. My first thought was, uh, was um, Nicholas Bentner. But, of course, he carried on scoring goals for Denmark and playing international football. So, you could, you know, although his club career wound down quite dramatically, he was still a uh, figure at international level. Uh, I think one about David Bentley, who at 22 was the next David Beckham, played his last game at 28. He's now out of the game. I mean, that, that was a, a lost talent. I mean, I guess sometimes players make the wrong moves. They find that what worked in one place didn't work in another place. There's off-field issues. Some of them find it difficult to deal with those things. I mean, obviously, I mean, Drinkwater's had one or two off-field escapades, which clearly hasn't helped, but it can't be easy. When, I mean, I know we talk about the money and the salaries and all that sort of stuff, but it can't quite be that easy when you, you know, you're you flying and then suddenly the whole thing's up, taken under your, your feet and you can't quite see when you're going to get a game, when, how you're going to get the team, and you're just sort of killing time, really. 
But um, yeah, it's been astonishing, hasn't it? Really, I mean, as a career, as a narrative arc, I mean, it really is a riches to rags job. Mm. Well, you know, when you look around, there are bargains out there. I thought Timothy Fosumensa going to buy Leverkusen from Man United for only two million euros. That's that's a, you know, I understand the contractual situation there, but that seems a ridiculous bargain. What about at the other end of that market? You know, what I would call the prime players, Amory. With Liverpool in vogue, Jeannie Wijnaldum is being linked to Barcelona in the summer. Does that ring true to you? Oh, that's a difficult one. I I don't think a lot of Liverpool fans would want to see Wijnaldum go. I think he's because he's been such a stellar player for them. But, you know, the wage discussions have stalled. Liverpool is suggesting that it's on the player's side. The player's not exactly saying a lot, and why would he? You know, I think Liverpool and the fans would want to try and avoid a Philip Coutinho situation where he was just going on and on about whether or not he was going to Barcelona and in the end it did happen. And I think the club and the fans would want to try and avoid that. As I said, I think he'd be a, I think he'd be a big loss to Liverpool, you know, because he's just come on leaps and bounds since he moved on from Newcastle, you know. I don't recognise... I wouldn't recognise him as a Newcastle player anymore because I see him so integrated into that Liverpool team. So uh, it's one to definitely to keep an eye on, but I think it's that thing, Mike, that it's just protracted negotiations going on right now, and that's another thing on the to-do list for Liverpool to sort out. Yeah. Talking of sorting out, Phil Neville sorted out his future He's with his mate David Beckham at Inter-Miami, which doesn't really scan, I don't think, but there we are. With Neville, Glenn, you obviously worked with him when he was in charge of the England women's team. A very good waspish piece, I thought, by Susie Rack in The Guardian, essentially calling him tepid, which I thought was a really nice word. Is he one of these coaches who's risen without trace? Well, it's quite hard to come up with any answer that isn't yes, to be honest. I wouldn't say he was a failure as England manager, but I wouldn't say he was a success either. I mean, my view was had he left after the semi-final against the United States, we would have regarded it as a successful experiment. Maintaining the status, uh, pushed the USA very hard, certainly raised the profile, which is, let's be honest, is, the FA admit was one of the reasons why they pointed him in the first place, you know, because of his statue in the men's game. Players liked him. Since then, it's all rather unravelled quite quickly. I mean, not helped by not playing since last March, but seven of the last 11 games were lost. The one thing I would say, there's a legacy that he did bring through a lot of young players in the later period, and his successors will benefit from that. There's been quite a lot of good experience given to, you know, some promising players and uh, Lauren Hemp and, you know, and, um, uh, yeah, I've done very well. Uh, Beth Mead came through very well under him. So there's been certainly some, some benefits to his reign. I would say that the team aren't that really any different than where they were four years ago, probably playing a slightly more sophisticated brand of football, but they probably would have had anyway, as Susie pointed out, because the WSL has become more sophisticated in the way they play, but still not threatening the elite teams, you know, to, uh, to, to threaten to beat them, the elite teams are often, you know, the US, Germany and so on. So we wait to see what happens. I'm just simply marking time now until Serena Vibrant turns up. And it's the unfortunate thing about it, it's been a very long and messy goodbye. Yeah, would you agree with that, Amory? Yeah, I was nodding my head to every single point Glenn made there. There's nothing else to add to it. I think he's absolutely spot on. I think it was interesting. I don't know if you guys saw the piece in the, in the Daily Mail that was, you know, backing up the good side, the good things that, that Phil Neville, I think it was Ian Herbert in the Daily Mail, wrote, yeah. Yeah, wrote a piece and... Uh, you know, 
define the naysayers of the rain. I totally agree with every single point that Glenn made. And I, I'm, to, I'm for one, really confused about the whole Team GB coaching, the new, uh, is it he- Hega Rise? Is that how you pronounce her name, Glenn? Hega Risa. Thank you. Hega Risa coming in for one of the camps. But And if things go well, she and Rianne Wilkinson will stay for the other two camps but they still haven't got anybody for the Team GB role. Yeah, Glenn's 100% right. It's turned into a bit of a mess, really. Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about managers, you know, we, we talked about homegrown managers earlier on, obviously Frank Lampard being the case in point here. I think the uncertainty about his future does throw into pretty stark relief the questions around homegrown managers and whether they can really work. just want to end by just... Going through that subject, you've got you know a club that's close to your heart, Glenn, AFC Wimbledon. Glenn Hodges is under a lot of pressure now. He's a former member of the Crazy Gang. So when you get a player like that who's who's steeped in the traditions of a club being under threat, does it really matter that he's associated with the club? If he doesn't get the results, he's out. I think what he does get, what you do get if you've got an association with a club is time with the fans. You get more patience because the fans desperately want to see you succeed. I mean, this isn't that relevant at the moment because obviously fans aren't in the ground. And I think Wimbledon, more than most clubs, are really missing the absence of fans because obviously with the new, you know, return to Plough Lane, it will be such an emotional occasion to, to, for fans to be back in there. Uh, you know, they've got a, a poor record so far at Plough Lane and, and an even worse one at Loftus Road when they, where they're playing at the start of the season. So they're really missing fans. It's difficult for Glynn in that yeah, the team have basically been losing for three years under three different managers, all of whom members of the crazy uh, former Wimbledon players, because financially, until they get the revenue streams on the new ground coming through, they are they are punching above their weight at the moment. And where the team is constantly losing for three years, it is, it is difficult. They've lost a couple of good players on loan, have gone back, trying to settle in some new players on loan, desperately need a couple of results to turn things around. It isn't looking that good at the moment. I mean, they're quite fortunate last year to stay up and the previous year, Wally Downs performed an incredible escape act to stay up the previous year. So since being promoted to uh, the third tier, life has been quite hard for Wimbledon. They they do need to be settled in with Plough Lane with fans and um, ideally stay up this year and then try and get a bit more revenue streams going through. But look at that wider point. There was an interesting piece in the Times which Gabriel Marcotti later picked up on a while back. The... Nine English managers in the Premier League, seven of them managed clubs less than 20 miles from where they were born. In Italy, there's 15 Italian-born managers and none of them managed clubs within 20 miles from where they were born. <laughs> we do seem to have a bit of a fixation here on you know, the old hero coming back, you know, ex-players. And there's a lot of them when you look around the divisions, a lot of clubs are managed by ex-players, people with a connection. It doesn't, whether that's a a good thing or a bad thing, it's hard to tell, I mean, because it depends whether the team are winning or not. Yeah, but I suppose, you know, you'd look at it, Amory. let's say take Aston Villa as a case in point. You know, Dean Smith, you know, his dad was a steward at, at Villa Park. He's a childhood fan. That's got to count for something, hasn't it? I think so. Again, it's that emotional connection to the club. You understand the values of the club. You live and breathe it. You know that the history of it, you want the club to do well. You have the best interests of the club at heart, yes, it can work in your favour, but it can also work against your favour. And I think, as Glenn rightly pointed out, it's about winning games at the end of the day. Having somebody who's got that connection with the club, I think, is a bonus, but it can also go the other way, as now Frank Lampard is discovering. Yeah. 
Well, promise me you won't switch off if I mention Steve Gerrard and Frank Lampard in the same sentence. They were dogged by constant comparisons in their playing days. It's not so different now they're in management. Each excelled as a TV pundit. Lampard went straight into a big job at Derby before returning to Chelsea at a time of need. Gerrard learned his trade with the under-18s at Liverpool and only then did he experience life in the goldfish bowl with Rangers. It's taken time and a few hard knocks to overhaul Celtic. I'd guess he's still four or five years and probably one big job away from any return to Liverpool and maybe, just maybe, that's the best way of doing things. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Glenn and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.